Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. And here we are. This is The Interpreter Radio Show. I'm Martin and Tanner in studio tonight. Spencer Krause is off and we have with us via phones um, uh, Hale Swift and Brent Schmidt. I believe we have both of you together. Is that correct? Or both of you? Yes. Excellent. I'm here. <laughs> Outstanding. Um, we'll talk some other time about the details, but I apologize for being tardy that with with the information I got you today and wanted to ask as we start off here if if the two of you have had a chance to take a look at the email I sent in the wee hours of the night last night oh yes I did I looked at this morning perfect and Hales did you have a chance to take a peek at that as well yes excellent all right so we I I found out before the show because I've, I've been behind in a lot of things this week that uh, Spencer Krause wasn't going to be here, but we, we will move along without him. And I'll do the the openers for the interpreter radio show and then Kimber Academy. And then if that works for you, Hales, I'll t turn the show over t to you to do some of the intros and, and we'll move ahead with, with that. That's great. Okay, this is the Interpreter Radio Show, which is brought to you who are listening by the Interpreter Foundation, the mission of which is to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship by providing accurate information to the public about the church. We also make available this scholarship and accurate information on the internet and through various publications. We also defend the church against criticisms. We do all these things to help support the church. Nevertheless, we are not owned or controlled by or directly affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And what we say and publish is solely our responsibility. Also, the Interpreter Radio Show during this segment is sponsored by Kimber Academy, which is a K-12 private school. Unlike public schools, the Kimber Academy keeps God in the classroom. Kimber Academy is a special place where teachers guide students towards faith and towards morality. They do that with quality and engaging curriculum, and they do that in a way that students' voices are heard and in ways that make it possible for everyone to be involved in the process. To find out more, to schedule a tour, you can call the director, Jessica Bianco, at 801-382-7158. Or you can go to KimberSchool.com. That would be Jessica Bianco, 801-382-7158. Or go to KimberSchool.com. 
And with that, I think we are ready to start our program, although I think we lost uh, somebody. Who do, do we still have Hales or do we have Brent? You lost me for a second, but I'm back. But you're back. We have you both back. All right. Uh, I don't know if we have both of you back because I don't, I don't see a merged conference call here. But nevertheless, we, we, let's, let's move ahead. Um, you ready to start us off with our subject matter? Yep, here's our, here's our other call. Hold on yeah, just a moment. Yes, now we are all back together. All right, awesome. For this week, we find ourselves firmly in the Isaiah chapters of the Book of Mormon, uh, so-called because in them Nephi includes extensive verbatim quotes from Isaiah's text. Chapter 11 serves as a preface, and there Nephi explains his motivation for including these texts, and the remainder of the chapters in this grouping are essentially quoted from Isaiah. I will start... Uh, our discussion with 2 Nephi 11, which serves as the preface. Um, at the beginning of chapter 11, Nephi begins his remarks by tying up his record of Jacob's sermon given in the preceding chapters by indicating that what he has written isn't everything Jacob said, but he's already written enough of it. Uh, in verse 2, we have Nephi give us his fundamental reason for including Isaiah's word. And now I, Nephi, write more of the words of Isaiah, for my soul delighteth in his words. For I will liken his words unto my people, and I will send them forth unto all my children. For he verily saw my Redeemer, even as I have seen him. For Nephi, the fundamental virtue of including Isaiah's words is Isaiah's witness of the Messiah. This is also, we learn, a key reason for including Jacob's words as well, beyond the obvious imperative of brotherly nepotism. As we learn in verse 3, And my brother Jacob also has seen him, as I have seen him. Wherefore, I will send their words forth unto my children to prove unto them that my words are true. Wherefore, by the words of three, God hath said, I will establish my word. Nevertheless, God sendeth more witnesses, and he proveth all his words. So Nephi includes these three witnesses, if we may call them that, to fulfill the law of witnesses. Uh, to remind those who may not be fully familiar with this principle, under Israelite law, uh, before one can be judged or held in legal jeopardy for their life, there must be two or three witnesses that testify of the events in question in which they may be culpable. No one person is, or no one witness, no one person's witness is by itself sufficient to condemn a person. As Deuteronomy 19.15 states it, one witness shall not rise up against the man for any iniquity or for any sin, in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. Nephi's children's allegiance to the coming Messiah is a matter of spiritual life and death, and Nephi correspondingly provides witnesses appropriate to its seriousness. Uh, continuing with verse 4, Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given, and all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. So not only Nephi, Jacob, and Isaiah are witnesses, 
But the law of Moses and the dealings of God with his people are all calculated to witness of the Messiah because it is only in and through him that we can be saved. As Mosiah 3.17 puts it, there shall be no other name given, nor any other way nor means whereby salvation can come unto the children of men. Only in and through the name of Christ, the Lord omnipotent. Nephi also so emphasizes the importance of covenants with God, and this is one of Isaiah's key themes as he signals in verse 5. And also my soul delighteth in the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made to our fathers. Yea, my soul delighteth in his grace, and in his justice, and power, and mercy, in the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. In verses 6 to 7, Nephi makes an argument, and it's important, to under, it's important that we understand his implicit assumptions, which I'll discuss uh, after reading them. And my soul delighteth in proving unto my people that saved Christ should come, all men must perish. For if there be no Christ, there be no God, and if there be no God, we are not, for there could have been no creation. But there is a God, and he is Christ, and he cometh in the fullness of his own time. So why could there have been no creation if there was no God, or if there were no Christ? Um, the key assumption here is there is a God, and he is Christ. For Nephi, the God of Israel, is the premortal Christ, sometimes called Jehovah, or in Hebrew transliterated into English as Y-H-W-H, or pronounced Yahweh. Um, he is the creator, and without his uh, pre-mortal contributions, there would have been no creation. So this, this identification of the God of Israel with the pre-mortal Christ also persists with Isaiah. Um, and I'll now turn the time over to Brent for a discussion of chapters 12 to 13. And be before you jump right in there, I, I want. Oh, sorry, to, I should. No, you're I fine. I should have asked for comments on that one first. <laughs> no, 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 you're great. There's, there's just one quote that backs up exactly what you just said in in verse seven, where it says, "For if there be no, be no Christ, there is no God." And and then it specifically says, "But there is a God, and He is Christ." I mean that that's saying just we said, and that's a little different from the way that most Latter-day Saints would, would say it. They would say Christ is the Son of God. But here, he is God. He is, he is the God of, of the Old Testament. And I suppose that's, that's not too different from Latter-day Saints, but most, uh, most Latter-day Saints speak of Jesus as, as the Son of God. Okay, Brent, there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Hales. And just to add out a few more things about Isaiah... We know later when the Savior visits the Nephites, he, he says, and this is in 3 Nephi 23, verse 1, that we should search these things. And then the Savior, who quotes Isaiah quite a bit when he visits the Americas, just invites us, it says here, to search these things diligently, and he says, for great are the words of Isaiah. And then he explains a couple other things that might be helpful as we look in chapters 12 and 13. For surely he spake as touching all things concerning my people which are of the house of Israel. Therefore, it must needs be that he must speak also to the Gentiles. And so in, in a lot of ways, as we become part of covenant Israel through baptism, he speaks to us. But I think he, he also just speaks to, to people who aren't of the, the lineage in this time, maybe of Judah. He speaks to all the world. And then... even according to the words which he spake in. This is in verse 3 again in 3 Nephi 23. And so 
anyway, we should take really close a really close look at every single thing that Isaiah is saying that the things that were that were and that will be are in these particular chapters we'll be looking at. So it says the word that Isaiah and so now I'm, we're now in Second Nephi chapter twelve verse one. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And if you are a, a Jew at this time, Isaiah has a, a cool name. It means in Hebrew, salvation is of the Lord. And so he's trying to explain, maybe he's giving his name as also a foreshadowing of this message, how we can receive the salvation of the Lord is through the temple. We also have a patronymic here. That's a fancy Greek word that means it gives us the name of the father of Isaiah that, that also shows that, that he has he has authority. A lot of times in the ancient world, if you know, uh, if you have a, a prominent father, know who your says here, and it shall come to pass in the last days. And so, it seems that he's referring not to not to his time, or even maybe a, a century or two later, or centuries later, but he's referring to our day, according to our Savior. When the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above all the hills or above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And so this seems to not not talk about Jerusalem in, in as much as the the latter days. We know that the, the Gentiles weren't allowed in the temple of Jerusalem. They, they could go to this outer court. Um, but anyway, the Romans actually forbid... A lot of the revenues that the Jews paid as, as good Jews, they were supposed to pay a half shekel. And we know that there's some texts by Cicero and others who try to keep the nations from going to the, the, the temple in the time of Jesus. But, so this must refer to our day and refers to these prophecies that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young later talked about that there'd be a, the Lord's house would be in the, the top of the mountains. And then verse 3, And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the God of Jacob, and he'll teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And the word Jerusalem, also in Hebrew, means something like new peace is another way to translate it. So this is uh, referring, you know, symbolically possibly to this idea of peace that we receive as we attend the temple. I know that one of the best places to the gospel really well. Uh, and then verse 4, He will judge among the nations and shall rebuke m many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. This is one of the most famous lines in the King James Bible that influences English. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall he learn war anymore. And so the idea of missionary work is, is a lot of times, a, especially if you read the Book of Mormon, is a lot of, the, a lot of ways the best way to turn things around, help people repent than war. And so as people will choose to follow Christ and be humble, then the Lord doesn't have to humble them through warfare. Verse 5, O, o house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Yea, come and... For you have all gone astray, every one to his wicked ways. And as we 
learn the standards that the Lord has in the temple. We, we learn about our wicked ways that we need to change. It mentions here that there's lots of idols. Uh, it says soothsayers. It doesn't say they're Philistines. It says they're like the Philistines, and they please themselves in the children of strangers. And so it mentions all these different things that people struggle with. There's lots of idols, things that are made out of works of their own hands that their fingers have made. And it mentions here some of the different types of people that won't accept the Lord. And some of those people maybe we could relate to today. It mentions here the Lord shall come upon all the cedars of Lebanon. So this seems like it's it's much more than just the cedars of Lebanon. But it says, in all the high mountains, all the hills, and upon all the nations which are lifted up on every people. And And so anyway, these are just some beautiful verses. We know that... If you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, the, the writings of Isaiah are copied the most. Uh, Genesis and Isaiah are the most copied among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the early Christians considered Isaiah in a lot of ways to be the fifth gospel. It's very, very quoted and popular also among Jews of the Second Temple period. And so it's just amazing that... and. and that uh, if you think that Joseph Smith somehow made up the Book of Mormon that that would have all this information, because Isaiah wasn't as popular in the 19th century, but, but we can see the the hand of the Lord as he is trying to talk about how to gather Israel. But anyway, as we continue, idols is idols uh, literally an idol is something that you, something besides God that people worship. And then he says here, cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for when, wherein is he accounted of. And so the Lord wants us to learn about him, and we do that through the temple. Um, we're going to move now to chapter 13. It says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and staff, the whole staff of bread, and the whole stay of water. And it mentions some of the different types of people that that might be proud so we start out with a captain of 50 honorable people. But the children will be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. A lot of times you can look at the missionary work the church has, that they send these 19-year-old men and 20-year-old uh, and young ladies out to preach the gospel who are basically just babes. My grandpa used to say that if the church wasn't true, the missionaries would have destroyed it a long time ago. But we have this... <laughs> fulfillment of prophecy that the, the bays would help. And the people, it says, shall be oppressed, everyone by another, everyone by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient. And when a man shall take hold of the, the brother, verse 6, of his father, and shall say, Thou hast clothing, be our ruler, and let not us ruin come under thy hand. And then that day he'll swear, I won't be their leader, for in my house there is neither bread nor clothing. So anyway, there are some things that that Judah will struggle with. We know that Jerusalem's destroyed a lot, uh, but hopefully as people keep the commandments, as it says here, uh, by not hurting the poor is one of the things uh, mentions the daughters of Zion will, uh, will be uh, not so pretty to look at. But as people choose to come to the Lord and, and be humble, then the Lord will be willing to work with them. That's what I have for 13. Perfect. Uh, one of the things that chapter 
13 of 2 Nephi and Isaiah 3 talk about, and, and Brent was very diplomatic there, is that there's going to be a time that will come when, and there's some fascinating ways that this is translated, but the gist of it is that they will kind of wear revealing clothing and, you know, fancy outfits that are alluring and enticing and not really appropriate would be a polite way to say it. And the gist of it is that they will cause a lot of damage and, and God will um, God will make things not so wonderful for, for them that verse 24 talks about instead of a sweet smell, there will be stink and, and instead of um, beautiful hair, there will be baldness and, and so on, you know, burning instead of beauty. It's, it's harsh language there. And, and then we jump into ch chapter 4 of Isaiah, which is chapter 14 of Second Nephi, which is quite short. And it says, when all these things happen, with with the women of the daughters of Zion, and presumably this is also in the last days. When this happens in verse one, seven women will be will grab at the same time one man, and each of them will say, "Hey, I'll buy my own food, I'll buy my own clothes, but marry me and take away my disgrace of being single." And I, of course, I'm paraphrasing here here, not. Um, not not reading it word for word, but the gist of it is is that this will be a very difficult time. There will be a large percentage of women who who can't find a man, and, and this will be a problem. And then it goes on to say that the Lord will bless his his people. Verse two talks about the time will be coming when the Lord will make his land fruitful and glorious again. And the people of Israel who, who, who are around will, will take, meaning the church, will take great pride in what the land produces. And all the people who are there will be uh, very fruitful. You can take this, I, I, I suppose, as a double uh, fulfillment because that would certainly describe the land of Israel which had been desolate for many many centuries and beginning in 1947 when um, uh, boy we're having a tough time with the phones today I apologize for for the phone system but what's really going on here is, is that this could be a double fulfillment with Israel, which has done an amazing job since the late 1940s when it was formed uh, through the United Nations until today. There's some amazing technology, amazing desalinization of Dead Sea water and um, amazing orchards. It, it's, it's quite a country. It's an amazing place. It could also be said of the church and the way that it has grown since 1847 in in Utah. What has happened is that the idea of 
Zion blossoming as a rose could be said of the Latter-day Saints in Utah and about how the church in the Intermountain West has grown and also about about Jerusalem and the Middle East. But the 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 final parts of of this uh, in Isaiah chapter four uh, in let me move here to, to verse 5, are in, in effect that the Lord will cover the, the whole city, the, the whole area and its meeting places with a thick cloud each day and with a flaming fire by night. Now, that, that doesn't mean there's going to be some horrible smoke or problems. This is a reference to the Exodus and how God was with his people because the the children of Israel escaping from the Egyptians could see a fire at, at night and a cloud that was cloaking uh, Yahweh or Jehovah during the day. And that idea is here and said to be something that will be present in the future after the restoration of the gospel. And so that's that's a fascinating uh, statement as well, and, and, and one that I think is, is also quite marvelous. Uh, we, we don't have Spencer with us, so uh, b- before we jump into chapter 5, I'll, in, I'll invite Brent and Hales to interject here if they have something that they'd like to add to that short little Chapter 14 of, of Second Nephi. Anything to add, gentlemen? I had one, uh, I guess, group of thoughts about that, which is that uh, the judgments of the Lord that produced so much destruction um, also seem to have led to purification. Uh, there are arguably two ways to get to a state of purity as a people. One of them is transformation through repentance, and that's the one that we're effectively assigned to to work on. Um, but if you look at how the Nephites actually got to their ultimate Zion state um, after the coming of the Lord, a key part of that was the destruction of those who were engaging in the worst sorts of practices, such as murdering the prophets and so forth, uh, in the events surrounding the, the Savior's, the signs of the Savior's death. And that, um, we'll say, external purification seems to have been fairly important for their ability to uh, embrace the higher law and um, arrive at a state of science so quickly. Um, and that, that's one of the things that's happening in, in, in that Isaiah chapter. Because of the destruction that's already happened, they're kind of able to, the remnants are righteous, so that they're able to rebound from that rather quickly. And we know, too, that the Lord doesn't just, uh, just create Zion in terms of uh, just one place, but in verse 5 it talks about how that uh, on every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies, so I think there's this idea that there will be lots of assemblies 
and a cloud, uh, it says, in smoke by day, the shine of a flaming fire by night. I think the idea is that the Lord will be with his people and visit his prophets. And our prophets, President Nilsson and those who work with him, I'm sure have wonderful experiences with our Savior Jesus Christ. And, and it says here, for upon all the glory of Zion shall be a defense. So as we try to build Zion, as our prophet uh, Joseph Smith talked a lot about, that should be our goal while we're here. But as we build Zion, we'll have a defense from all of the problems of Babylon and, and the world. And and as the Savior is with us, I think he's the ultimate defender that we have. And this can be a place of, of refuge. And and I've, I've felt a lot of refuge just being a member of the church because we are blessed to have the gift of the Holy Ghost as well as meeting with other saints and and having um, being taught by the Holy Ghost about Jesus, who he is, and he still ministers among us. I believe that to be true. And I know most, uh, all Latter-day Saints do, do as well. Some years ago, I had an experience with uh, Harold Bloom, who who was professor at Yale and a literary critic, who, who uh, al- although uh, not very religious himself, he, he he wanted to be, but he was kind of a skeptic and and a doubter. But he always had wonderful things to say about the Restoration, about Joseph Smith, and the most salient point that he would bring up in in the two interviews that I had with him over the years was that he loved the idea that Latter-day Saints didn't believe that Revelation had all ended with the apostles. It was present now. Joseph Smith had it, the current prophets had it, and it was not just accessible to them as leaders, it was accessible to everyone in the church, and he just thought that was the most wonderful thing in the world. And, And I I, I I share his awe and amazement with that. It was wonderful to hear him say that, especially as an outsider and as someone who's self-described as as a critic. So, I, I liked his his book uh, called The American Religion, and in chapter four he talks about a Jewish Kabbalah, these secret knowledge and writings that were related to the temple, and how a lot, there's a lot of anthropomorphism. The idea that that God has a body and that mankind can have a relationship with with Yahweh and anyway in this book he he just says pretty point blank that that Joseph Smith somehow hacks into the the very first forms of Kabbalah he's not sure how that all happened but he's he's very impressed that that we believe that like like you mentioned Martin that we can all have a relationship again with Jesus and our, especially our prophets do but but that Jesus wants to have a relationship with all of us. And and so I think that's a pretty pretty powerful testimony coming from a literary critic about the church. <laughs> very very much so. And he, he was a great guy in his, his, his last days. He loved teaching so much that he, he had um, congestive heart failure, and so he held the classes at his home, and students would— would go over to his home and, and hear him talk about things, and he would tell them about the Latter-day Saints and how they all believed in current revelation and not 
that that God was something different from a far off spirit. He he was this present, uh, accessible, literal father, and people would say to him, "Wow, really? That's quite a new." <laughs> and it's something that we take for granted, but something that. Harold Bloom and apparently his students as well as he described it thought was quite remarkable and it is and it is okay let's uh, let's jump into Isaiah 5 which is chapter 15 the first seven verses here are uh, kind of exciting here and what they do is, is they're actually in poetic form. And if you were to read this in one of the more contemporary versions of, of the Bible, rather than in just, just the verses as they're set out in the Book of Mormon and our King James, you would see that it's in a literary format. And it's talking about a vineyard. And it's talking about the way the vineyard is taken care of and about how the Lord's efforts are compared with the vineyard to um, the, the Lord's the Lord's efforts with the vineyard are compared to his efforts with the church I should say that again a better way the Lord's efforts with the church are compared to the efforts of the steward who's overseeing the vineyard. And the comparison is made of, of someone who takes loving care of the vineyard and does his very, very best. But what happens? Well, uh, the people weren't as good as they should have been. And, and, and he talks about, in, in verse 5, the vineyard being trampled and left in ruins. And uh, about what, what happened to, to Israel and how it was overrun. This is apparently dis describing uh, the, the destruction perhaps in 600 B.C., per perhaps also in 68 A.D. And, and the later destruction... That, that happened in the second century AD, all of these things were, were horrible destructions for, for Israel. But then we, we get to the positive part of this, which is um, a, little way, a little ways down there because in verse eight it continues and tells how, how difficult things are going to be. And then finally, can, before you move on, can I ahead. just share yeah. one more thing? Martin, sure, please, please. Yeah. The vineyard. Um, so if you study a lot of horticulture in the, the Near East, they actually always start planting grapes as well as olive trees. And the idea is it takes maybe 50 or 80 years for the olive trees to start producing. But they, they work first with the vineyards and they're trying to create a fruitful hill that will have both grapes and olive trees at the same time. Uh, the problem is, is they, they can't even get through the grape stage here and everything's destroyed before they can even get ready for the, the Lord of hosts. And, and so anyway, it says, woe unto them that joined house to house. 
but uh, they, it seems that they won't be able to ever make it to this idea of the, the olive, which they use the olive oil to anoint prophets, priests, and kings, and and ultimately that olive oil is used for everything light, and and ultimately it's what are the the Savior, the Messiah, is anointed with, and and so anyway, probably a ancient person would would realize that it's really really sad that instead of trying to produce olive olives in a good garden, they're actually just using the grapes to get drunk. In verse eleven, that's right. Sorry to jump yeah. in there, Martin. Yeah, no, no, and that's right. No, no, and hey, jump in any time. Verse eleven talks about drinking and drinking until night from early in the morning. And, and so obviously those who were involved with what should have been a serious undertaking are uh, just just wasting it, wasting it away. And then, of course, as, as you move on a little bit further, verse 16 talks about the Lord of hosts being exalted in his judgment and holy in what he does and, and he talks about uh, the, the the difficulties eventually that that will befall the wicked verse 23 well that before i get to 23 verse 20 is a great one and it talks specifically about woe unto those that call evil good and good evil this has also been picked up in the new testament uh, the, the, those who t- switch things around so good's evil and evil's good are specifically condemned here. We see this kind of an idea in Doctrine and Covenants section 64 and in section 121. We see it in Moroni chapter 7. We see it in 1 John chapter 1 verse 6. It happens over and over and over. But then you get to, to, to the ideas that in the end everything will eventually be okay because in verse 26 what happens is, is that after all the destru- destruction and the difficulties as the re- as a result of all the evils we have an ensign to the nations that will be lifted up and everyone will be desirous to come to it and it says that, that the analogy is given that none will slumber or sleep because they're so anxious to get there. And then, of course, um, the, the whole idea is that, that eventually there is safety in goodness, and that safety is shown to the nations in the form of the ensign of the gospel, which is lifted up and shown to everyone in the last days through the works of good church members and of course also missionary work. If anybody else would like to jump in for chapter 15, please feel free. Okay. So in verse 29, it, it just mentions that they'll roar like young lions and you know, lions is, would be the, the symbol of Judah. I wonder maybe if Maybe this is a maybe metaphor to the the Savior. Or there'll be deliverers. It mentions here, um, but uh, and they shall roar and lay hold of their prey and shall carry away safe and none shall deliver. 
and that they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if they look into the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, the light is darkened from the heavens. And so, anyway, um, the, the, the Savior has his lions, but the adversary does as well. And so in our day, it's really, really important that we use agency. It just mentions all these, all these different challenges that, that people have if, if they're not all in. And there will be this, this enzyme up to the nations. We get to choose if we want to be a young lion with the savior or a young lion with the adversary. But, but yeah, there's, uh, there's only darkness and sorrow in, for the, the wicked, though, that's one of the things that Isaiah talks about is the, the the principle that wickedness never was happiness, and we see that a lot, that there's all these people in this chapter that are are pretty, we might say, uh, haughty or arrogant, but uh, the Lord, it says the anger, anger of the Lord is kindled against them, and so anyway, the Lord will take care of everything, ultimately, verse 25 it says here, for for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So anyway, he'll he um, he. Did we lose you? I have a quick remark about that. Which Please. Is that, oh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. The uh, John Gee made a post a while ago about the idea of the Lord's hand being stretched out still, and he made the point that the hand is stretched out primarily in the sense of being in the smite gesture. In other words, it's stretched out, lifted up, and ready to fall on someone, or ready to let fall the sword on someone, um, if they are not, uh, if they do not make the mistake if they do not correct their ways, essentially. Thank you. Great, great addition. Let's take a look at chapter 16, which parallels Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, we have this uh, description of the Lord sitting in his temple. And that is, is just a beautiful description here. It's, it's something that is very similar to what you read in Ezekiel chapter 43. You have the Lord on his throne in the temple and his train, which, which is the idea of, of his light and his beauty also fills the temple. And, and you have some descriptions of, of, of heavenly beings. And, the, and then you have this um, hearkening back in, in verse 8 to the idea of how it all happens. And, and you have the, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And, and then I said, Here am I, send, send me. And this seems to be a reference to God presenting forth his plan. And, and then the plan uh, is presented and, and given by Jesus to carry out. And, and there are some in the last days who, who would also liken this unto the calling of Joseph Smith, 
who would be involved in restoring the gospel? Who would God send to do that? And Joseph Smith said, I will do it. Here I am. You, you can send me. And the gist of it is that all of this is important to re- restore the gospel. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to be that brief for chapter 16 because we have a lot to cover in the, in the last few minutes here. Is Brent or, or Hales anything else for chapter 16 before we move to 17? Just there's a tithing principle of tithing at the end of that verse here, uh, in verse thir- uh, 13 of chapter 16. Go ahead, Hills. Um, my only point was that I think this is likely the passage Nephi was thinking of when he says that Isaiah had seen the Lord even as he is, even as my brother Jacob and I have seen him, and so forth. Um, He's seen the the premortal, or he's seen the Lord of Hosts, Yahweh, who is also the premortal Christ. So, based on that identification, this is this is likely what he means. Great comments. Chapter seventeen of of Second um, Nephi. In this parallels Isaiah seven. And here it talks about, in, in verse 3, the Lord says to Isaiah, Go forth now and meet Ahaz and your son, uh, Shear Jashub. And, and this, this name has, has a literal meaning here, which, which is important. And what's happening here is that you have this description of things that are going to take place in the future. And one of the key ones here in the interest of time here is in verse 14, where it talks about the Lord giving a sign or God giving a sign. And that is, and we have it in our King James Bibles and in the Book of Mormon, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us or God is with us. There's some controversy because the Jews who, who read this say, oh, this, this, just means, uh, this just means a young woman. And, and, I've, and, and there are some uh, Christian critics and, and uh, theological scholars who, who claim that virgin is an improper translation. I've always been somewhat amused at that because people would only make that comment living in today's society that, that somehow there might be any kind of literal difference be, between the idea of a virgin conceiving or a young woman conceiving because in, uh, in the time that's, that's being described here in chapter 17, if you were just talking about a young woman, uh, that wouldn't really mean anything. It, this this has to be there there would be no way to to distinguish the the person the the young woman who it was this has to mean a virgin this has to be something quite remarkable that would stand out and if it was just a young woman conceiving well that could happen to some who weren't married and a whole lot that were married and so there there would be no way to to judge or gauge the fulfillment of this prophecy this 
this has to be a, a virgin and that has to be the implication here. So that would be my main comment for this verse. Um, and for this chapter, I, I suppose, as, as well. It talks more about the Savior's life, but we're, we're running out of time here. More comments from either of you, gentlemen, um, Hales or Brent, about chapter 17, paralleling Isaiah 7. Maybe we nope. could come back to it the next hour if, if um, there's time, maybe the next hour. We, we could. We, we, just, we just try to keep the one hour for, for people who um, have an hour to spare to, to prepare. But yeah, go, uh, go, ahead, go ahead and add something if you'd like to add something to chapter 17. Okay, um, let's then move on to Hales, chapter 18. All right. Chapter 18 begins with a promise of deliverance key to, yet again, the birth of a child, a type of Christ. You'll remember that Nephi, at the very beginning of this, said that all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the world unto man are the typifying of him. So we shouldn't be surprised to find that one of the examples that Nephi writes from Isaiah is, in fact, a type of Christ. Uh, in this case, a birth child, who will bring deliverance. The people are exhorted, in addition, to uh, not depend or, on or fear political alliances or conspiracies for deliverance. Uh, in chapter 10, we have, take, take counsel together, and it shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all to whom this people shall say a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. But sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him dread. Verse 14 also has an important point, which is, And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense, to both the houses of Israel, for a gin and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. A lot of people failed to truly see and recognize the Messiah, even though he ministered to them in power, and those who failed to recognize him, uh, the desire still to come fully unto God must repent and recognize him before they can prove, before they can uh, progress further. There's also another issue that gets addressed in the section in verse 19. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and mutter, should not a people seek unto their God, the living to hear from the dead? We lose Hales, are you there? Okay, let's uh um, like we lost him. It it does sound like we lost him. All right, he um for, for a wrap up of, of chapter eighteen verse eight, because we don't have too much time left, uh, one of the ideas here from Isaiah is that he has named his son uh, destruction is imminent 
which is kind of an unusual name for a child. But, mm-hmm. but this was very meaningful at the time because anyone who ever spoke with the son would have had, I mean, the idea of naming your son something uh, that, that was meaningful was not unusual, but this particular name would, would certainly have been unusual. And, uh, and, and so the name of, of the son, Mehershala Hashbaz, is, is quite interesting, and it would have been a, a reminder to the people that, that Isaiah had been testifying that the destruction really was imminent right around the corner. Looks like, Hales, we, we have you back, so feel free to continue. Yeah, can you tell me where I was when you lost me? Well, <laughs> you you hadn't gotten too too far in there. You, um, I think you were just talking about um, actually just a little bit past where I was. You know, kind of recapping here. Um, we we lost you for several minutes. Right. And I talked about uh, not depending on or fearing political alliances or conspiracies for deliverance. Yeah, I, I, I did not hear that, so go ahead. Chapter 18 begins with the promise of deliverance, keyed yet against the birth of a child, which is a type of Christ. At the beginning of this section that we're covering tonight, Nephi talked about how all, all things which have been given of God from the beginning of the, the world unto man are the typifying of them. And so we should not be surprised that, again, uh, the Lord is doing things in a way that typify Christ. That is, in this case, sending a child as a, uh, as a sign of deliverance, which is going to take place. Uh, going on from there, uh, and the people are exhorted to uh, not depend on or fear of political alliances or conspiracies for deliverance. They're told, take counsel together and it shall come to naught. Speak the word and it shall not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all to whom this people shall say confederacy, Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense, to both the houses of Israel, for a jinn and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. With regards to that last verse, a lot of people failed to truly see and recognize the Messiah, even when he ministered to them in power and glory. And... The, the failure to recognize him are, became a major detour to their salvific progress. Um, in order to fully come unto God, they would need to repent and come unto Christ. Uh, there's also another uh, interesting verse, uh, 19, which say, states, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and mutter, should not people seek unto their gods for living to hear from the dead? So this is a prescription against unauthorized mediums as a medium 
of uh, getting information from, uh, I, I guess, those who have uh, departed mortality. Uh, people should seek to the Lord um, to get their information. And if they do that, it will land them in good stead. Whereas if they uh, seek seek unto false media, they are at risk of being deceived, at risk of being influenced by false spirits rather than uh, guided by the Spirit of the Lord. That is chapter... Uh, was that 18 or 19? That, that's 18 oh. and, and uh, Isaiah Thank 8, and, and we have chapter 19 now in Isaiah 9. Right. Um, 19, my scriptures have just linked out on me. That's interesting. Just a second. Okay, got it. Um, chapter 19, um, Verse 2 is, uh, again, another instance of a, a, a prophecy alluding to the Savior. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. This is then quoted in the New Testament uh, with reference to the Savior uh, was it living in Nazareth or Galilee. Oh, well, um, I apologize for not having that particular note uh, as well developed as we would prefer. Um, if either of you remember which one, which one that was used as a reference to or have that handy, that would be great. Um, I'm going to go on for the moment, but, uh, but please come back to it if you do. Uh, in verse 6 and 7, there is a, a promise that is, I would say, closely linked with Davidic kingship. Uh, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Uh, the increase of government and peace there is no end, upon the throne of David, and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So, the Messiah will uh, essentially be a Davidic king, but he will have a number of name titles that can be rightfully applied to him. Uh, the King James separates these by commas in some instances, um, where it shouldn't. For example, the first two are one object, wonderful counselor, not wonderful comma counselor. Um, Another translation that came up in my Isaiah class um, had rendered it something like, he shall be a counselor wonderful, a God mighty, a father everlasting, and a prince peaceful. So that, that may be a good way of understanding that verse and how the, the ideas are grouped together. Um, but it, it's worth emphasizing that the leadership of the Savior and his government will not be like uh, earthly government in many respects because they will be seeking to establish peace. They will build on eternal principles. 
and so will not be designed to produce the sorts of divisions and political rancor that is so often a part of our uh, political lived experience. Uh, and I think that, as much as I'll cover at this point, given the timeline we're trying to keep. Does anyone else have anything they want to say about it? I, I think you summarized it well. I, that, that sounds great to me. Brent? Thank you. Any additions? Thank you. Thank you. Hales. Okay. With that, we will take a short uh, two-minute break or so, and we will be back. Stay tuned. This is the Interpreter Foundation with Hale Swift, Brent Schmidt, and Martin Tanner. Stay tuned. <laughs> 